So today's scripture reading is actually going to be read in English and Spanish. So it's from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 13 through what is it, 22. Oh, 25. Yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you know us for doing these things or show us? For doing these things. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when, we, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Juan, capítulo 2, versículos 13 al 25. La Pascua de los judíos está cerca. Y Jesús subió a Jerusalén. En el templo encontró a los que vendían bueyes, ovejas y palomas, y a los que cambiaban dinero ahí sentados. Y haciendo un látigo de cuerdas, echó a todos fuera del templo, con las ovejas y los bueyes. Desparramó las monedas de los que cambiaban el dinero y volcó las mesas. A los que vendían palomas les dijo, quiten esto de aquí, no hagan de la casa de mi padre una casa de comercio. Sus discípulos se acordaron de que estaba escrito, el celo por tu casa me consumirá. Entonces los judíos le dijeron, ya que haces estas cosas, ¿qué señal nos muestra? Jesús le respondió, destruyan ese templo y en tres días lo levantaré. Entonces los judíos dijeron, en 46 años fue edificado este templo y tú lo, lo, lo levantarás en tres días. Pero él hablaba de su templo, de su cuerpo. Por eso, cuando resucitó de los muertos, sus discípulos se acordaron de que había dicho esto y creyeron en la Escritura y en la palabra que Jesús había hablado. Cuando Jesús estaba en Jerusalén, durante la fiesta de la Pascua, muchos creyeron en su nombre al ver las señales que hacía. Pero Jesús, en cambio, no se confiaba en ellos porque los conocía a todos y no tenía necesidad de que le diera testimonio del hombre porque él conocía lo que había en el, en el interior del hombre this has been reading God's word you may be seated well good morning everyone it brings me so much joy to gather with each of you uh, every Sunday for worship my name is David Duran and I am the church planting resident here at Doxa Lord willing the Duran family uh, and others will be moving to 
Metro Boston to begin the work of church planting in the near future. Uh, we are um, we're focusing our efforts on Plymouth, Massachusetts, but uh, should the Lord take us in a different direction, uh, obviously we are okay with that, but we are focusing on Plymouth and on the South Shore region of Massachusetts. Now, every time I'm up here, every single time, I ask you for continued prayer for me and for Margot and for all the decisions that have to be made in terms of planning a church, and I want to thank you for praying. Last time I was up here, I asked for prayer. There were some, some real big decisions that were even that week, and the Lord answered, he answered the prayer. We had clarity that week after I asked for prayer on Sunday, so I know you all are praying, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart um, for your prayers. The Lord is, is answering our prayers for clarity and direction each and every day. As Dale already mentioned, on Tuesday, Margo and I and Randy uh, will be traveling up to Boston for some meetings with different church leaders and pastors. Um, Dale mentioned it's the, the NFL combine, I guess, of as long as I don't have to preach in my underwear the way those guys have to run around in their underwear at the combine, uh, I'm going to be just fine. Um, <laughs> that was good. Uh, but please just continue uh, to pray for all of us. Um, I actually have these prayer cards here uh, that I'd love for you to take one of as you leave. They're, they'll be at the connect table there in the back. Uh, these things are long overdue. I think I'm just going to blame uh, COVID for that. Uh, that seems to be uh, the response I always get for why things are, are late and overdue. So we'll blame COVID, but they are, they are here, and you can grab one at the connect table uh, when you leave, stick it on your fridge, and Lord willing, it will remind you just to, to pray for us and for our family. You know, it's, it's not me and Margo and our team that are planting King's Cross Church. Uh, first and foremost, it is the Lord. But each of you, every single one of you who are members of Doxa Church, you're, you're planting this church as well. You are sending us off to New England for the glory of God and for the good of his church. And this is such a unique experience that we all get to be a part of. This isn't me or our team planting the church. This isn't a me thing. This is a we thing. This is an us thing that we all get to be a part of. And I'm just so excited to see what the Lord is going to do in the coming months and years in Massachusetts. Well, let's pray here, and then we're going to look at our passage together. And remember, it's not just me praying. This is us praying together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the source of our contentment and our joy. You are the one who gives us life. You provide for us. You care for us. You correct and discipline us when we need it. And for these things, we give you thanks. We thank you and we praise you for the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. The suffering servant is the victorious king. We thank you. We ask for your help to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you. We confess that we are far too often self-absorbed and self-centered preoccupied with the things of this world and neglectful 
towards the things of your kingdom. Forgive us, Father. Help us by the power of your Spirit to be filled with your Spirit. We cannot manifest the fruit of the Spirit in our own strength. We cannot live as salt and light in this world without relying on you. Far too often we rely on ourselves. We're in need of you, Lord. And we acknowledge our dependence on you. May your name be honored and praised because of us and not in spite of us. Father, we lift our community groups and community group leaders to you this morning. We pray that you would continue to breathe life into this this crucial ministry in our church. God, create environments in each of our groups where fellowship and prayer and confession and spiritual maturity are all taking place. Lord, continue to raise up new group leaders and give an extra measure of wisdom and endurance for those who are already leading. I also want to pray specifically for the students and the professors at Coastal Carolina. Lord, help them to navigate the stressful and often exhausting ecosystem that is the university campus. May all the work that the professors and the students are doing be used for your glory, Father. I also pray for the college ministry here. I pray for Koinonia. Continue to fill that weekly gathering with your presence. I pray that students would come, and we pray, not I, we pray, that students would come to faith through that ministry. Equip the students there to be faithful disciples of Jesus. We know that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So we pray as you instruct us, Lord Jesus, that you would send out laborers into your harvest. Allow us to experience the joy of seeing more and more people added to your kingdom. Thank you that we get to take part in this glorious work. And now as we open your word together, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us a greater understanding of what it means to be worshipers who worship you. Apply your word to the hearts of every person here. The church, this church, belongs to you, Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would build it up for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the most insightful observations that I've ever come across on the topic of worship came from a man named David Foster Wallace. Wallace was a novelist, a short story writer, and a university professor. And he was brilliant in many ways, um, but he was also a, a deeply troubled man. And after struggling with depression for many years, Wallace took his own life in 2008 at the age of 46. And upon his death, the Los Angeles Times actually called him one of the most influential and innovative writers in the last 20 years. Well, in 2005, just a couple years before his death, Wallace gave the commencement speech at Kenyon College. It's a private uh, liberal arts college in central Ohio. And it's from this address where we find Wallace's very perceptive insights into the relationship between worship and what it means to be human. Let me read for you just a couple of excerpts from this speech. And keep in mind, uh, Wallace was 
a spiritual man, but he was not religious. He would not be considered a Christian. Here's what, what Wallace said. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing God or some spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, on the verge of always being found out. And then Wallace ends this sort of section of his speech with this. He says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's in his eyes. That is, it's not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are our default settings. Wallace here, he's drawing something out that is really, it's pretty apparent if we have eyes to see it. And that's this. We, as human beings at our core, are creatures designed to worship. We are designed to offer our adoration and our reverence to something outside of ourselves. And while many of us, we might agree with that statement, we might nod our heads at that, how often is it that our worship looks inward instead of outward? How easy do we become obsessed with ourselves, even if it is that we're sort of directing our worship to something else somewhere out there. And as David Foster Wallace noted, those things have a tendency to eat us alive. So what's the solution? What's the answer to this problem that each one of us face? Namely, that the objects of our worship often leave us feeling empty and alone. Friends, we need to have the worship compass that sits at our core recalculated and reoriented. A compass is designed to indicate direction, and it does this through this little magnet that detects and picks up the Earth's natural magnetic field. But if a compass is not calibrated correctly, it leads its user in the wrong direction with disastrous results. Imagine being lost in the woods and you know your, your camp is to the east and your compass is telling you the east is that way. If you keep going in this direction away from food and shelter and safety, what happens? You're going to die. If a compass is not calibrated correctly, it leads its user in the wrong direction with disastrous results. Well, today in our passage, Jesus is recalculating and reforming the worship compass of his people. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John, and today we're entering into a brand new section in John's Gospel. 
Remember last week, our passage had us in Cana in Galilee with Jesus attending a wedding. He turned water into wine. And this miracle was the first sign that Jesus actually is the Messiah. And today, John is shifting our focus towards Jerusalem. Verse 12 of John 2 tells us that Jesus and his mother and brothers and disciples, they stopped in Capernaum for a few days after attending the wedding. And now, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. Now, I want to point out that there is a little bit of debate as to whether this account that we're looking at of Jesus cleansing the temple happened shortly after the wedding at Cana, or if John is rearranging the order of events in order to make a larger theological point. Some of you might remember that in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple comes at the, at the end of Jesus' ministry, shortly before Jesus would go to the cross. And it appears here that John might be placing this account at the beginning of the story. And, and some scholars have concluded that John must be doing this in order to uh, make a larger point in his gospel. And just for the record, I, I don't think that's the only way to understand this. Uh, I think there are actually two instances of where Jesus cleanses the temple. One at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end. And the, the second cleansing of the temple noted in the Synoptic Gospels is the way I see it and others is that's sort of the last straw in the eyes of the religious leaders. Um, but regardless, it's not super significant here for what we're going to look at, regardless of whether Jesus cleanses the temple once or twice, the passage that we're looking at, it is loaded with significance. And an indicator of this is right there in verse 13. Look, look at verse 13 if you have your Bibles open. John opens his section by identifying, in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. It's a clue there's something important and significant going on in this text. Now John, he's really big on keeping track of the Jewish feasts and celebrations. There's at least three references to this in the Gospel of John, and possibly a fourth. Um, but the Passover celebration, it finds its origin all the way back in the book of Exodus, specifically in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, the Passover was established when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. The Israelites had been in slavery for over 400 years, and after nine different plagues, uh, didn't move Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, God sent one final plague. And that was the death of all the firstborn sons of Egypt. And this one provoked Pharaoh temporarily to free the Israelites. Now a key part of this story involved the sacrifice of a lamb. And the Israelites were instructed to take some of the blood from that lamb and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house there. Let me read for you verses 13 and 14 of Exodus 12, just so you can get a, a picture of what exactly is happening and what they're celebrating. It says, The blood of the lamb, the blood shall be a sign for you on the, house, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. 
The Passover was an enormous deal for the Jewish people. And a big part of the festivities there were the sacrificing of animals. Verse 14 in our passage shows that. It bears that out. It says, In the temple he, Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now stay with me here for just a minute because you're going to see the weightiness of what John is pointing out if you understand just a bit of the background. I've given you some of that, but I also think it's important to to notice what John doesn't point out here. He doesn't mention that there's anything unethical taking place. The ones who are selling animals and changing money, they're actually fulfilling an important purpose. Jews would be traveling from all over to observe the Passover. Some of them would be traveling for days. It was much too far a journey for animals to travel. They would need to purchase animals in order to offer the necessary sacrifice. And history tells us that the animal merchants they used to set up on the, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, but now they've moved into the temple courts. It's not the practice, it's the place that's the problem here. The money changers would be changing money so that people could purchase animals and that they could pay the temple tax. Again, nothing in the text to indicate there's dishonesty going on. But Jesus is not having any of this. Verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Many of us are so familiar with this story. We've heard it over and over and over again. But how easy is it for us to miss the the significance, for us to really miss what's happening? Is this Jesus simply showing, hey, there is a place for righteous anger? Is that all that's going on here? Or as some have tried to show, is this Jesus condoning violence? Absolutely not. This was certainly a a forceful action on the part of Jesus, but it wasn't cruel or violent. So what, what is this? Friends, the cleansing of the temple was a messianic action. What that means is the cleansing of the temple was an action that shows who Jesus really is. He is the Messiah. He's the one that the people have been waiting for. You remember back in John chapter 1 on two separate occasions. What does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. When Jesus cleanses the temple, you know what he's showing? The Lamb of God is here. Jesus, with this action, he is challenging the entire sacrificial system. Friends, what's foreshadowed in Exodus 12, what's foreshadowed in the Passover feast is brought about in Jesus Christ. That is to say that Jesus is both the sacrifice and he is the deliverer 
of his people. He's the sacrifice and he is the deliverer of his people. Jesus introduces this reality when he cleanses the temple. That's the introduction of it. And he ratifies it with his shed blood on the cross and through his resurrection. Jesus' death on the cross was the perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. Jesus lived a sinless life in word, thought, and deed. He died a criminal's death in his crucifixion. And for those who are united to him through faith, his sacrifice on the cross becomes ours. Hebrews 10.10 And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That lamb, that lamb that was slain by each of the Israelite families in Egypt whose blood covered them was pointing to something so much greater. It was pointing to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not only the sacrifice, but he's also our deliverer. Jesus removes God's wrath and justice from over our heads. He delivers us from punishment for our sins. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life, kingdom of light. And he delivers us from death to life. Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. And this is the good news of the gospel. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this message This reality is what has changed the lives of many people in this room. The sin and the shame and the guilt that many of us used to feel has been removed. Not that we don't ever struggle with sin or shame or guilt, but its power over us has been removed forever and ever in Christ. The feeling of unworthiness and insignificance has been removed. Through faith, through trusting in Christ as our Passover lamb, as our sacrifice and deliverer, we have received new life. The Bible says that we are literally new creations. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul puts it, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I just want you to know that um, that thing that you're looking for, that you're grasping for to satisfy your soul, whatever it is, it's only, only in Jesus can you find, can we find satisfaction. Only in knowing Jesus as our Savior and Lord do we know peace. And today can be the day where you become a new creation in Christ. I'm praying and I've been praying that that would happen for someone in this room today. Look, in the cleansing of the temple, Jesus is changing the way that we worship. He's changing it. It's no longer about sacrifice and what we bring to the table. Authentic worship of God is not about what we do for him. It's first and foremost about receiving what Christ has done for us. Right relationship with God through Jesus, that is what's necessary for pure worship. Jesus is the only one who in receiving our worship fills us with his love, joy, and peace. 
all the other things, money, sex, power, success, pleasure, those things will eat us alive. And they only leave us constantly wanting more and more and more. And some of us, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to tear down those idols this morning. The worship compass of our heart, it needs to be recalibrated. This doesn't happen by singing extra loud and raising our hands at the next worship song. It doesn't happen by volunteering for every outreach program that you can find. No, it happens when the Holy Spirit lifts our eyes to Jesus. The actions and the behavior, they, they follow this. Faith without works is, is dead. Right? True faith is followed by works. But true faith and pure worship, it flows from the Holy Spirit captivating our hearts with Christ. You know, for me, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit does this is through daily prayer and meditation on God's Word. I know in some circles there's been a a bit of a pushback against this because it's been perceived as um, sort of being presented in a legalistic manner, like, Just read your Bible and pray and everything's going to be okay in your life. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. I just know how quickly my heart wanders. I know how quickly it becomes infatuated with other things. How quickly my worship gets directed to other things. And God uses uses prayer and the reading of his word to recalibrate that worship compass in our heart. God also uses his his gathered body to do this. He uses his bride, the church. Now, it's amazing to me how many people I've talked to who are struggling significantly in their spiritual life. They're struggling significantly in their relationship with Jesus, and they're also disconnected from the church. The Christian life, it cannot simply be a me and Jesus thing. It's a we and Jesus thing. We need the body of Christ. We need to sing together and pray together and study God's word together. We need to take communion together. God is forming us individually and as a people when we do this. He's directing our hearts in worship towards him. I know we have a lot of parents in the room today. A lot of parents and I want to ask you a question. And to be fair, as a parent uh, to three little girls myself, this is a question that I have also wrestled with. So here's the question. Parents, if your kids were to ask you, what is it that mommy... I'm sorry, let me retract. Parents, if you were to ask your kids, ask your kids, what is it that mommy and daddy worship, what would they say? Would it be work, television, a new car, new boat, something like that? Would it be uh, retirement someday? Would they say that it's them? Or would they say Jesus? Would they say Jesus, probably not like this, but Jesus is the one that has captivated mommy and daddy's heart. You know, when Jesus ran the animals out of the temple, 
and he poured out the coins of the money changers, that was really a pretty strange thing to do. That was a strange act. Imagine being there and seeing this. You're probably wondering, what in the world's going on? Who, who is this guy? What, what is he doing? Who's, who's this guy who's disrupting one of the most important times of the year for us? It seems that the Jews, uh, they discern some kind of a messianic claim from Jesus. Maybe some of them remembered the last part of Zechariah 14.21, where it says, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of, of hosts on that day. Maybe they were thinking of that passage. So the people want to know if Jesus can actually do the signs of the Messiah. So they ask him a completely logical question in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? What right do you have, Jesus, to throw into disarray all that we've got going here? And to this question, Jesus gives a very strange answer. So strange that John interprets it for us so we don't miss it. Let's look at it. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John interprets for us what Jesus is saying here in verses 21 and 22 again, because it's confusing. He wants to make sure we don't miss it. The temple was one of the most beautiful and magnificent buildings in the ancient world. It was the symbol to which all of Judaism looked. Jesus' words here would be blasphemous. But what in the world is Jesus saying? We know what he's referring to because John tells us, right? He's referring to his resurrection. But what is the significance of Jesus tying his resurrection to the temple? What's the significance of that? You know what Jesus is doing? He's saying that the presence of Almighty, of Almighty God is not to be found in a temple. It's not to be found in a temple. It's to be found in me. Jesus is saying God's glory doesn't reside in a temple. It resides in me. Friends, Jesus' resurrection is the raising of a new temple. Perfect and authentic worship is not dependent on the construction of a literal temple sometime in the future. No, it's centered on the temple that is Jesus. We don't have to look forward to the construction of some temple in the future. Jesus is tying his resurrected body to the temple, and his resurrection is the raising of the new temple. Matthew 12, 6, Jesus tells the Pharisees, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. In fact, I would argue that it was never actually um, primarily about a temple. Now certainly, the construction of the temple was a, was a huge part in, in the Old Testament. In the book of Haggai, God commands the Israelites return from exile to rebuild his temple. And there's other places we could go to talk about the significance of the temple. I'm not negating that fact. 
I'm just simply pointing out that the temple was not the end game. Temple was not the end game. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Stephen, right before he was going to be martyred in Acts chapter 7, he introduces this Isaiah passage by saying, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. No, the temple was a temporary place where God's people met with him. Jesus is the permanent place where we go to meet with God. Participation in the worship of God and and membership among God's people is not limited to those who can enter into the temple. So much more than that. We're going to get here in a couple of weeks, but you remember um, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, she poses a question to Jesus. This is significant for what's happening here. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say... And Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And the you there is the Jewish leaders and and teaching. It's not Jesus specifically. Um, And and Jesus' response to her, so important for this. But just what Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Here's the point. It's not about a place. It's about a person. One more passage on this. Revelation 21, 22. The new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Listen to what John writes for us. The same John who's writing this gospel. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb the Lamb of God, the one foreshadowed in the Passover, our sacrifice and deliverer, he changes the nature of our worship. It's about a pure heart. And he changes the place of our worship. It's not about a temple, it's about him. But what does that mean for us? Does that have any sort of practical use for it, or is that just good theological understanding for us to fill our heads with? No, this has enormous practical use. The next thing I'm going to say, I really want you to get this. If, you, if you've heard nothing all this morning, hear this. Because worship is no longer connected with a temple, but to a person. And because Christ is forever present through his spirit, then all of life is meant to be lived in worship. All of life is lived in worship. Paul said it this way, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. To do anything to the glory of God is to worship Him. Did you realize you are worshiping God by doing a good job at your work, provided that your form of employment isn't sinful, of course? You're worshiping God by doing a good job. Do you know you can eat a meal to the glory of God? You can brush your teeth to the glory of God. You know how you do that? You thank Him that you have teeth while you're brushing them. You thank Him that you have a toothbrush 
and toothpaste to brush your teeth with. A life that is filled with worship is filled with thanksgiving for all that we have. First and foremost in Christ, we magnify Jesus. We worship Jesus when our lives demonstrate that He is enough for us. Church, when we go through suffering, that's one of the greatest opportunities to find out where the worship compass in our heart is pointing. It's often during these times where what we worship becomes most obvious. When we lose the job, when we get the diagnosis, when it feels like our world is falling apart, what we worship becomes very, very clear. I don't say that to negate the reality of pain and suffering. I know some of you are right now walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Feels like it. Many of you have been there before, and some of you are getting ready to enter into that now. But when we go through trials, when we go through suffering, our hearts are exposed. They're exposed. And we find out in a very real way if Jesus is the object of our worship or if it's something else. Jesus closes the passage with a little bit of a warning. I'm sorry, John closes it. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Friends, Jesus is looking for genuine worshipers of him. He's not looking for sign chasers, but worshipers. That's what many of the Jewish people were doing. They would ask for a sign over and over and over again. We're going to see that in John. And Jesus was actually giving them signs, and they missed it. They missed what he was doing. They believed, as John says in verse 23, they believed in some sense, and that was the sense that they knew Jesus was unique. They knew there was something different about him. But they didn't believe in the sense that Jesus became their Savior and their Deliverer and the object of their worship. And if that's you today, where you, you believe in the sense that Jesus is unique, but not in the sense that he's your Savior and your Lord. I, I pray that you would, you would wrestle with this passage. Wrestle with what Jesus is saying. You may know there's something unique about him, but in your eyes, he's not worthy of your worship. He's not worthy of your adoration. He's not worthy of your affections. Let me just remind you, or let David Foster Wallace remind you, Everything else is going to eat you alive. Only in Jesus are you going to find rest for your soul. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Martin Luther said, what your heart clings to and trusts in, that is really your God. So what is your God? What is that thing you're looking for to provide peace and rest? Or what is that thing that you run to every time your life gets difficult and stressful? What's that thing you run to to satisfy your soul? 
Only Jesus gives and doesn't take. Only Jesus, only the risen Christ can fulfill our longing for worship without consuming us in the process. Brothers and sisters, we celebrate the risen Christ together each week when we take communion. We remember his sacrifice on the cross in our place. We remember his resurrection and the deliverance that we have in him. We remember that he is he's coming back for us. He will not leave us as orphans. We are nourished spiritually through faith when we take the bread and we take the juice, the body and the blood. And in this act, in doing this, our eyes are lifted in worship to Christ. This communion meal is open to you if you are a believer in Jesus. And we do not require a baptism in order to take communion. But if you're a Christian who hasn't been baptized, as Dale mentioned here at the beginning, we would love to talk with you more about that important step in obedience to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to, I want to thank you for being here. We consider it an honor that you would come and be here for one of our worship services. We really do. It is an honor that you would be here. And while this communion meal, it's not for you, it doesn't mean that this time can't be meaningful for you. So I, I simply invite you to take a minute, think about everything that you've heard as people are making their way forward. And by the way, please don't feel awkward if you're in a place where you're saying, I, I'm not a Christian, I, I shouldn't take communion. Um, don't feel awkward in not coming forward when other people are coming. You're actually showing us a great deal of respect by refraining from this meal if you know that you're not a believer in Jesus. So as always, uh, communion will be served from two stations here at the front. And as you feel led, you can make your way forward. And you can receive the bread and the juice. And make your way back to your seat. And then uh, Justin Kramer, I believe, uh, one of our elders is going to come forward and lead us in taking this meal together. So let's pray, and we will continue to worship. Oh, Lord. As Augustine said in his confessions, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts find rest in the pure worship of you. Help us, Lord, to see Jesus in his glory. Help us to be people consumed with Christ. May his aroma surround us everywhere that we go. Father, we need you to fix our eyes on Christ every day. So we ask that you would do that now. Make us, Doxa Church, a people who worship you from pure hearts for your glory and our joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.